Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 527, Hidden Invitations. How does an inclusive gospel still lead to a necessary choice for those who hear the invitation? Is the cross the key to unlocking a deeper understanding of the parables? We're going to learn about these things and more as we study the parable of the sower together this week in Matthew 13. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, To my amazement, this is week 27 on our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Today, we're going to come to a very famous chapter, chapter 13, uh, which is all about the parables. And we're going to cover, I want to give you some background on why Jesus taught in parables and and how to understand parables. And then we're going to look just at one, uh, the parable of the sower. You know, it's interesting. I've been studying pretty hard the last few weeks on parables, and, and I've learned more uh, in the last few weeks about parables than in the last 45 years. And so there's a lot to cover today, and I'm hoping that this will equip you, and then where we're going to go next week's really important uh, part two of this journey that will further equip you in in reading not only the parables, but I think the Gospels in a, in a new way. So, chapter 13 we have a sudden change of scenery and audience from the end of chapter 12, uh, and this dramatizes the difference between the, the disciples as privileged recipients of Jesus' teaching uh, and revelation and the crowds who receive, uh, as we're going to learn later, quote, nothing without parables. For two chapters now, we've watched Jesus and his message being rejected by some with great conflict and and accepted by others with great joy. The parables provide, through stories and models and explanation, uh, for what is going on with this, this very diverse response to his teaching. The parables open the disciples' minds to the possibility that they themselves will be rejected. And therefore, the the parables function as a way of strengthening them as those who will proclaim the kingdom even in the face of opposition. The, the, The theme of division runs through these parables. We see unproductive and productive soil. We see good grain and weeds. We see good fish and bad. The kingdom of heaven is linked to each of these parables. Again and again, Jesus begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. The parables challenge us to think through how God is working out his purposes on the earth. Joseph Ratzinger, who's who's someone I'm very indebted to in this study. I actually have read many, many different authors the last few weeks, but Ratzinger believes that the parables are at the very heart of all of Jesus' preaching. They're a proclamation of both the nearness of the kingdom and that it is it is breaking in. So it's here, but it's breaking in. The, uh, the awaited kingdom arrives in the person of Jesus Christ. In pointing to the kingdom, the parables are pointing to him as the kingdom's truest, purest expression. The parables reveal Jesus as the one who has come and yet the one who will come uh, throughout human history until the summing up of all things. Therefore, 
we can interpret all of the parables as hidden and multi-layered invitations to faith in Jesus as the kingdom of God in person. As I like to say when I'm preaching in places, the kingdom of God now has a name and a face, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I've got several things I want to say that, that I learned from Ratzinger. Uh, the parables present aspects of life that perhaps we've not yet considered and that cause us to make choices about our own opinions, our own actions, even our own relationships. The parables lead us into the mystery of God and his work in the world. The, the, the parables, the word mystery is going to come up over the next couple of weeks because this is that word I've shared with you before that because of the historical critical method, it's like we've lost an understanding and a pursuing of the mystery of Christ, what, what Paul called the unsearchable riches. The parables are one way of taking us back into that mystery, how his light shines in the everyday activity, how his light shines through creation. The parables show us that God is not abstract. He's our Father. He's always presented in a very concrete way. He is the God who acts. He is the God who intervenes. Excuse me. The parables reveal who we are and therefore what we must do. Because if we will read the parables as they're meant to be read, if we will meditate on them, if we will allow them to go deep, they make demands on us. If we will be honest in our interaction with them, they always make demands. Jesus is going to talk about hardening of the heart. We're going to see that through the next two weeks. And really, that is about refusing to to interact or neglecting interact. It's like keeping them on a surface level, an intellectual level. It's Jesus who tells us the parables and this same Jesus who will end up at the cross. He speaks the parables But it's this same Jesus who sometime later will go to the cross. So it's the cross that is the key that unlocks the parables. That's that's one of the biggest contributions to understanding the parables that Ratzinger made. The cross is the key that unlocks the parables. Because you see, the parables speak in a hidden way to the mystery of the cross. They reveal something of the mystery of Christ, of the kingdom, and the mystery of the cross. The the, the pull of I and self, of ego, are chains in our lives. And that's a theme that runs through these parables. And these must be broken to free us for a new love and a new life. And this breaking free is at the heart of the parables. For it reflects the essence of Jesus' message to all who will hear him. And this is why the cross is at the heart of the parables. Let me just look briefly, very briefly, at this structure. Chapter 13 is is one of the hinge points of of, uh, Matthew's gospel. It, It brings the first half to an end. Matthew brings together seven different parables to form this third great discourse. You may remember at the beginning, I told you the structure of the gospel is that there's five, they revolve around five great 
discourses. We have already looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at the, at the missionary discourse of chapter 10, and now we come to the parable discourse. Um, it's all about response to Jesus. And this chapter skillfully brings to an end the, the section of a committed discipleship that began in chapter 11. Because you'll recall, we saw in chapter 11 and 12, it was, uh, it was opposed by the religious leaders, but Jesus kept taking us to the place of committed, faithful discipleship. So, Now let's look. What is a parable? Let's begin to answer this question with some background. As as we saw earlier, and we've come back to it a few times in this series, the effect of the Enlightenment uh, of the uh, 18th century and the materialism of the 18th and 19th century had a great impact on biblical studies in the 19th, the second half of the 19th, and the 20th century. And what we got was what's known as the historical critical method. And it focused only on the literal meaning as revealed through a historical framework. I've said to you before, this led to a a two-dimensional reading. It was anti-mystical, anti-multiple meanings. If you read most 20th century commentaries on the parables, you will often see the statement, parables are not to be read allegorically. However, I'm glad to tell you that in in the last 20 years, (coughs) there's been a recapturing of what we've called the water to wine or the spiritual reading of the parables. And, And again, Allegory is being understood as something that is an essential part of understanding the parables. What we're really doing is we're recovering what was lost because the church fathers and the early church understood this completely. Now, there is a danger to over-allegorizing every detail of a parable. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it can be allegorized where, well, what does what, what the Good Samaritan's donkey mean? And what does the wine mean? And what, but we're not to over-allegorize. But in response to that, we can't say there isn't multiple meanings. That's where the depth is. There's no doubt among current Eastern Orthodox scholars that the parables of the New Testament were allegories and lent themselves to allegorical interpretation demonstrated by Christ himself. We're going to see how he unpacks some of the allegory in the next two weeks. Um, The fathers of the church understood this, that Christ masterfully uses vivid images from everyday life to ensure the listener has every opportunity to connect with the spiritual truth in a lifelong manner. So as we will soon see, uh, an example, the footpath in the first parable, which is the parable of the sower, represents the journey of life that we all must walk. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes from now. But it's more than just seeds on a hard ground. It, it, it represents something. Jesus Put that in there to take us into this whole concept that we're sojourners, that we're on a journey. The parables make direct appeal to the imagination and involve the hearers in the situation. We're going to come back to this, but but what I hope I can lead us into is as we're reading the Gospels and as we're reading this chapter 13, 
that we enter in. We don't just sit back at a safe distance, oh, I understand that parable, or that's interesting, but we enter in. We let the parable not only speak to us, but do work in our hearts. The parables invite us to judge the situation that Jesus presents and then challenges us to apply that judgment to ourselves. Parabole is the, is the Greek word, and it means throwing together. Isn't that interesting? It means throwing together. It means two things you put together for similarity, for contrast, for surprise. We're moving quickly today. I hope you can listen quickly. Why did Jesus teach in parables? The, the move from the synagogue to the seashore at the beginning of this is very significant. As the religious leaders turn against him, Jesus moves more and more out into the open air, out to the, the common people, as it were. And, and his, his teaching in parables comes after widespread rejection of both his message and his person. Remember, they started to, to accuse him of, of being an agent of Satan in, in chapter 12. He uses the parables to continue to hold the, the awareness, the attention, and the intrigue uh, of the people at a time of great opposition. The parables reveal truth to those who were hungry. This hunger thing is going to be a huge issue for us. The gospel is always for those who are hungry. Uh, we've, we've looked at Isaiah 55, 1, Ho, everyone who's thirsty, come to the water. Uh, John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me all who are weary, heavy laden. It's a welcoming gospel for those who want to be welcomed. At the same time, Jesus used parables to conceal truth from those who were either too self-satisfied or blinded by their prejudice to receive it. We have to watch out for that. Oh, I already understand this, or I understand that. That's We've got to be so careful about self-satisfaction and presumptuousness. Parables bring light to those who are looking for light. For others, the parables just darkens uh, intensifies the darkness that they have. The parables were Jesus' method for spurring on his listeners to make a choice. Let me say this again. Parables cannot be understood from the outside, from a, a safe, emotional, non-accountable distance. They're not information. The parables share the hiddenness of Jesus. They meant, they're meant to challenge us to think again to go deeper. So, why are the parables grouped together in this chapter? I don't believe Jesus sat there and and went uh, spoke through seven different parables in a row. I think these are parables he would have used multiple times. Every preacher, uh, you know, even myself, as I preach in different countries and places, I use some of the same illustrations and in some of the same teaching, and it's always a little different, but there's some overlap. There's some continuity. People that have hung out with me over the decades, I, I sometimes when I hear them preach, I hear, oh, they've heard that. They've recognized that. So recognize that that Matthew has structured this gospel. It isn't necessarily that literally Jesus spoke all seven in a row, but he might have. 
They form a, a powerful climax to the first half of his gospel, and they point squarely to who this king of glory, Jesus, really is. They show us that the kingdom, like Jesus himself, is filled with mystery. The, the parables aren't clear. They're not direct. They require contemplation and self-honesty. They face the listener, that's you and I, with the basic question, what will you do with Jesus? Now, there is a, a, a compression of an awful lot of information in, in 15 or 20 minutes. But I wanted to give us this common background. So now let's look at one parable today. The parable of the sower. Verses 1 to 9. Later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore. He told many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plants soon wilted under the hot sun and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among the thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seed fell on fertile ground. And they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. <coughs> Galilee was profoundly agrarian. It was built on a farming culture. And three of the parables in this chapter uh, take place on a farm. This parable is given first place in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And any interpretation of the parable has got to give justice to a central point, which is in sowing kingdom seed, there is both failure and success. That's it. That's at the center of this. In spite of the the title, parable of the to of the sower, the focus is not on the sower. It's not even on the seed. It's on the soil. The only determining factor of success or failure is the soil. One of the central points of uh, the parable is the indiscriminate scattering of kingdom seed. I've always loved this. It reflects the extravagant heart of the father that he scatters the seed extravagantly. He doesn't pick one place at a time and one seed. He's not worried about it because he knows the seed will do its work. <clears throat> one of the church fathers, Christostom, said this, the sower makes no distinction between rich and poor, wise and unwise, slothful or diligent, or brave or cowardly. I love that. I love that. Jesus uses this parable to teach his disciples that even though the seed will be unfruitful in three of four cases, they're not to be discouraged. Jesus knew these things, that, that there would be this rejection, but he never stopped sowing anyway. Chrysostom also points out that sometimes the kingdom seed changes the nature of the soil. The rock becomes soil. The road no longer is trampled upon, etc., that, that the, 
the, the seed sometimes surprises us with the work that it does. Remember, what is impossible in the natural is not impossible with God. So I want to give you some different options for interpretation um, that, that have been presented to me in my study over these last few weeks. And then we're going to open up a little more later. The parables give the disciples encouragement despite inevitable failures. The parable emphasizes the effectiveness of the gospel of the kingdom and the ultimate certainty of a good result, despite lack of success with some. Ultimately, there is going to be a great result. Thirdly, it focuses on the responsibility of hearing and understanding and responding to the message of the kingdom. Um, one uh, author, theologian that I like very much, uh, Dale Bruner, he says there's even another grid for interpreting this parable. It's a parable of victory at the great harvest of the second coming. That's what he sees in the 30, 60, 100 fold. It's a parable of patience, not to get discouraged. It's a parable of responsibility. It, it, we're responsible for how we hear and respond to the word. And it's a parable of power, the word's own ability to bring the kingdom into the world. The point of this parable, and in fact the entire parable chapter, we're called as followers of Jesus to bring the seed, the kingdom word, into the world with its supernatural power of the coming kingdom. That's at the heart of all of this. And there's some key words here for understanding this parable. Jesus says, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Right listening is necessary condition of right doing. Now let's look at some of the verses. Verse 4. As he scattered the seed across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Um, this soil is unfruitful because its orientation is wrong. It receives the activity of people and not the activity of the sower as its main occupation. It's a, it's a footpath. It's, the ground is beaten down. It's, it's lost its ability to, to receive seed. The church fathers saw the spiritual significance of the footpath, and one said this, what is this path? It is the world into which all are born and pass through. It reminds us that we are all on a journey. It's universal. I wanted to just point out this same theme in one of David's Psalms, Psalm 39, 12. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am here with you as an alien a temporary resident like all my ancestors. This is a theme throughout the Bible. It's a theme that I wish more believers understood how many times, uh, over 50 times, God specifically speaks to the church, says, take care of the alien because you too were an alien. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles, we're all on a journey, but as we walk upon that journey, we must keep our hearts focused toward Christ. We, we've got to focus on, 
on heavenly things rather than earthly things in the midst of living an earthly life. The second word that sticks out in this verse is birds. Another church father, St. Cyril, said this, Unclean spirits are what is here meant by the birds. And so there's a warning here, journeying unaware of spiritual warfare of the work of the enemy opens us up to his destructive work. We need to be sensitive, not afraid, but aware. Verse 5, the rocky ground, other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. In Galilee, the soil was rocky, and uh, rocks were often very close to the surface. So Jesus is using an example that people can see all around them. He was brilliant at that. He's telling the disciples, here's a reality. Some are going to receive the gospel with great joy, but without really considering the radical demand and impact of their lives that the gospel carries. And so, when they fall away, um, they they just lose their way. When difficulties come, when difficulties come, persecution come, they fall away. And this is this is harder uh, on the sowers than than the soil, the, the seed that landed on the hard footpath. Anybody who's pastored knows this. The disappointment, frankly, the pain of, of walking with new believers, and as soon as it becomes hard, they just fall away. But it's a reality. Jesus was a realist. The church fathers believe that the stones in the ground have a significance. They, they saw them as the sin nature that remains in every person. And, and if this is tolerated... The enemy snatches the seed away. But they also see hope in this example from Jesus because of the promise of Ezekiel 36, 26. It's interesting how often the church fathers take us right back here, where the promise in Ezekiel is, I will take out of them the heart of stone. And their message to us is that that it is never too late for someone to let God transform their lives. One church father saw the rocky ground as Jesus being realistic and challenging with believers. He said this, What then is the ground? It is the sin nature that remains in the soul of the faithful who are still drawn toward the flesh. Their mind is from God, but their soul is from the divided will. This is an important understanding. When we read these parables, and I'm going to come back to this later, but let me emphasize, they are not about them, they're about us. They're not about the one you knew who fell away or or the one who got choked out by riches. They are a warning to us, okay? Let me read that again. What then is the ground? It is the sin nature that remains in the soul of the who? The faithful who are still drawn toward the flesh. Their mind is from God, but their soul is from a divided will. Verse 7, 
Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. You see the progression? In the first three soil types, we see first there's a uh, the seed that never even got started. The second one started out well but didn't survive or continue. And now the third, it, it survived, but it produced nothing. Again, one of the church fathers said this, If the word of God is jeopardized, because you desire wealth or fear to lose what you have or wish to acquire what you do not have, you do not openly profess the truth of your faith. Do you see how the concern and desire for riches suffocate the word and do not allow it to yield fruit? We're going to look a little bit at that later when Jesus interprets this parable. Verse 8, still others fell on fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 times as much as had been planted. Produced a crop is literally bearing fruit. And the word in the Greek, which is edidal, means just continuing regular normal action. The the soil's whole task can be summarized as, as give the seed room to grow. This isn't supernatural growth. This is the fruitfulness that happens when when the work of the Spirit is allowed to do its job in our lives. Jesus finishes, let anyone who has ears, let him listen. This is really the moral, moral of the parable. So now... Jesus addresses the issue of why he spoke in parables with his disciples. Verses 10 to 17. Then the disciples came up and asked him, Why are you speaking to them in parables? He said, Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Jesus says this more than once in Matthew's gospel. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, and here's the prophecy from Isaiah 9, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing. They have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. These verses are addressed to the disciples now, not the crowd. And these verses from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 which come right after the, for unto us a child is born, the son is given, etc. We, we hear that every year at Christmas. Immediately following, we get these verses. And, and these verses connect the unreceptiveness of Israel's own self-hardening. While these verses seem to indicate that there are insiders and outsiders, it's always possible to come inside. When people say, oh, the gospel's too exclusive, no, it's welcoming. It gives us a choice, and it always welcomes us to come in. 
This section challenges the hearer to engage with the process that the parable presents. And to do that, it requires openness and humility. And the result is a soft heart that now has the capacity, like the good soil, to respond to the truth. You know, parables can be dismissed as as mere story or, or simple illustrations. They're given without explanation. They're open-ended. It's important to note that Christ does not deliberately make people unreceptive to his message. It is the individual people who must take responsibility for being insensitive to the truth. Let's look at it again. Why are you speaking to them in parables? Because the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you to know, but not given to them. Saving knowledge of Christ and his kingdom is a gift. All our decisions of faith rest on the prompting and enabling work of God's Spirit. This continually takes us to a place of thankfulness. I didn't do it. This is the message of grace. It wasn't my decision. It was his wooing. You see, we've got to recognize a partnership, both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. So he says, on the one hand, it has not been given to them. However, as Christostom wrote, it was a voluntary and self-chosen blindness, seeing they did not see, so that the blindnesses of their own wickedness, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back and I would heal them, implying that upon their repentance they might be saved. As I said earlier, it is never too late. Jesus uses these words of Isaiah, once again, not to be understood literally, but as rhetoric to make a forceful point. These words are provocative, and they function to bring about hearing and obedience. We've talked many times about rhetoric and why you must not read this in a literalist way. Here's a, an interesting quote I came across from a contemporary writer. Despite the seeming simplicity of the stories through which Christ revealed deep spiritual truths, it was those innocent at heart whose soul was ready to accept the light shining forth, who understood what Christ taught and who were given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees who were present in the large crowd and who were highly educated were hard of heart, so they did not see and they did not perceive, and could not hear, and had not understanding. (sighs) For whoever has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough, is verse 12. Once you've started on the road of seeking his enlightenment, the blessings multiply. Those who resist or ignore, they start to lose everything. I encourage us as as the Gospels encourage us, as Paul encourages us, as Peter encourages us. You're on a road. Make it a road to going deep into Christ, into his mystery. Because as you do, the blessings multiply and multiply. By quoting this passage in Isaiah, Jesus is implying to the people Don't repeat the failure of Israel 
in Isaiah's time, don't reject God's word to his people. Verse 16 and 17, blessed are your eyes. Your is emphasized. Blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things that you see but didn't see them. Matthew is stressing to his readers, which is the early church. Remember, he was likely part of the church in Antioch. He's he's stressing a sense of divine privilege. We must never lose this sense of, of the incredible gift of God and the great privilege of being with Christ. A sense of the overwhelming grace of God leads to this ongoing sense of wonder and gratitude. This is the gracious work of God, and the credit goes to the sower, not to the soil. <clears throat> now here's a final, the final section is when the disciples come to Jesus, they've heard him give the parable out in front of everybody, but when they're alone, they say, would you unwrap this for us, please? So starting at verse 18, now, and in the language, it's now you listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seed. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, 100 times as much has been planted. So we looked some at... at, uh, we went into the parable at the beginning, but now Jesus goes into it. He, he leads us further in, and we don't want to miss anything here. So literally, you listen. The disciples have the privilege of having the parable directly explained to them versus the crowd who must work out as best they can the meaning. He said, to you it's been given the, the message of the kingdom. It's a really important phrase for us. This is the message that Jesus has been proclaiming and demonstrating since chapter 4 of Matthew. And regardless of the mixed response it has received, he will continue to proclaim and to demonstrate. It is the kingdom both proclaimed and demonstrated that turned the Roman world upside down. There's a terrific book I, I read 25 years ago, still on my shelf, the Christianizing of the Roman World by Ramsey McMullen, who was a, a Yale secular historian. Um, and, and he pointed out, he said, what caused this little sect, as he referred to it, to, to grow and grow and grow and turn the Roman world upside down was not just the proclamation, it was the demonstration. He said it was miracles, It was deliverance interesting for a secular writer, 
and it was their ministry to the poor. The kingdom, I will say to my dying breath, I hope, it needs to be proclaimed and demonstrated. That's the corner of the gospel. We see in verse 19 that wherever there's been a failure of a crop, it's not a failure of the seed, but a lack of understanding of the recipient. Understanding is a key word. It showed up three times in that Isaiah quote we just gave you. And understanding can be defined like this. Making a message your own or loyalty to a message. It literally means standing under that message. So understanding Jesus' teaching means to put it into practice in obedience. Obedience and understanding for Jesus, for the early church, were inseparable. So this is the critical issue of understanding the parables, not not cognitive assent. History shows us there's been too many times where Christians have not understood not made it their own, not been obedient to it. Again and again and again. The the first things that occur to me, the sad history of Christianity in the 19th century in America, Christianity and slavery, the the Jim Crow era, which I've done a lot of reading on lately, and it, it just can sometimes make my eyes tear up. And the church was behind the Jim Crow era in the South. Racial injustice, the church not getting on the right side of that. Unless we think this is about America, it's about everywhere. Look at Western European Christianity that did not stand up to the Holocaust. We need to be disciples who understand, who who remain completely committed and loyal to the true message of the gospel and obey it. Recognizing that obedience is going to come against our prejudices, our preferences, um, our priorities. But you know, here we have a scandal of unchristian Christians, and we could go all through history with that. But it's, it's not proof against Jesus or the power of the gospel. In this parable, he predicted it. He said, this is going to happen. Verse 20, 21, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and receive it with joy, but since they have no deep root, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. You know, a joyous conversion is no guarantee of a Christian life. Let me say that again. A joyous conversion is no guarantee of a Christian life. One of the early church fathers, Origen, said this, Perhaps then those seeds that fall on stony ground and those that fall among thorns fall between the people without knowledge and those who understand. What's he saying? There needs to be discipleship. This joyous conversion is no guarantee 
of a faithful Christian life. We have a great need for intentional discipleship. That's why at Impact Nations, we we work so hard. We were talking again today about it, uh, about intentional sustainability, and that is both spiritual. When people come to Christ, we do all that we can to get them into Christian community. We love house churches because it's such a beautiful vehicle for discipleship, but also sustainability that's practical so that, that, that people can begin to care for themselves. <coughs> Excuse me. And I would say that just as as I've told you before, I don't like to do big outdoor meetings. Some parts of the world call them crusades, which is not a word I'm that happy with. I don't like to stand in front of 5,000 people and preach the gospel because I know we have. I'm going to get joyful conversion, but we usually do not have the capacity to immediately follow up and disciple that many new believers. And so they're lost. Most are lost by the way. And that's why we're so committed to discipleship, why we spend so much time working with our partners. That's why Tim and I went to Bulgaria a couple of weeks ago to work with our partners on making disciples. See, it's interesting. There were enthusiastic crowds that followed Jesus everywhere. But when the attack came, they evaporated. They were gone. The problem is lack of root in themselves, Jesus says. Their enthusiasm is based on external stimulus, not inner conviction. And I would say let that challenge all of us in the Western church. Not based on external stimulus, but deep internal conviction, which comes out of deep relationship, out of abiding. You know, the disciples, yes, they briefly faltered, but then they they stood strong. They, They understood by the definition I gave you a minute ago. Verse 22, the the seed that fell among the thorns represent those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out with the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and so no fruit is produced. Literally, the worries of this life is the the anxiety of the age. The general anxiety of life that is all around us, that is leveraged by marketing, It centers around the fear of insecurity, financial insecurity, professional insecurity, relational insecurity. It leads to this this craving, this almost drivenness to to get ahead. We don't want to lose ground. We got to get ahead. We want to somehow master life. And I don't think it's ever been more true than this unique time we are in, This, this time of crisis. Uh, I encourage some of you to read the the last book I wrote, which is uh, The Beatitudes for a Time of Crisis. We need the gospel deep, to go deep, not just head knowledge, to go deep more than ever before. We're we're in a time uh, where COVID just keeps going and going and going. We're dealing with it all the time, where there's racial tensions that just, just keep being exacerbated, heightened political conflict. The polarization that, that we've, at least in America, they've never known at this level. And, and what Jesus is saying, when we succumb to this anxiety of life, the power of the word of the kingdom is steadily and steadily choked out. You know, the, the enemy he identifies in the second soil is persecution. They have no roots, and so, 
you know, the, the plant withers and dies. But I think there's a greater enemy here. It's identified in this third soil. It's the, it's the enemy of prosperity, and it's way more subtle. Seeking financial security, seeking to feel good about myself because, because of, of my financial progress. Matthew Henry, a, a famous commentator, said this, Prosperity destroys the word in the heart as much as persecution does. And more dangerously, because more silently, the stones were spoiled, uh, the stones spoiled the root, but the thorns spoil the fruit. The seed among the thorns grows for some time before it is eventually overcome. Both the anxiety of life and the desire for more material gain are more dangerous than persecution. Because they're more than distractions. They can lead us away from being disciples of Jesus and the Jesus way. And I know this is true, and you know this is true. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 23, the seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, even 100 times as much has been planted. Good ground is defined by Jesus in a simple way. Hearing and understanding. Remember, making the teaching our own and obeying it. It is not based on our talent or even our energy, but our faithfulness to the gospel of the kingdom. It is vital that we do not fall into an us-them paradigm where we see the the first three soil types as, as them people, either out in the world or as lax Christians. And then we see ourselves as the fourth soil type. This teaching is for every one of us every day. Jesus' words were intended for self-evaluation, not judging others. And the differing yields, 160, 30, they're not explained. And I think that lack of explanation suggests how large a yield we get is God's business not ours. Our business is to be faithful to Jesus' word and the Jesus' way. We've covered a lot, so let me just wrap this up. This parable, which is preeminent among all three synoptics, is about understanding the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom is about proclamation and demonstration. It's not theory. It's not abstract. It's not more words. We don't need more theoretical words. Secondly, the kingdom presents a challenge to hear, to perceive, and to understand. That is to reorient our life around this kingdom word. We must respond with a lifestyle that bears fruit. To be a disciple of the kingdom, hearing and remaining focused on the message of the kingdom in such a way that one is defined by that very message. Your whole life is defined by it. And the kingdom is presently at work and is being established and advancing as people respond with obedience and inhabit the world. God is sowing disciples into the world to transform it. He's sowing disciples to transform the world. It's a parable about fruitfulness. One commentator who I like very much, Craig Keener, said this, The only conversations that count in the kingdom are those confirmed by a life of discipleship. 
Think about that. How many times do we do we get into conversations that are about what's wrong out there or theoretical? Well, I think that this verse means this. The only conversations that count in the kingdom are those confirmed by a life of discipleship. <coughs> Secondly, parables can be heard as encouragement and as warning and as promise. As encouragement, Jesus is going to make clear in the following parables, the kingdom is advancing and it will advance. So don't be discouraged when others don't see the results. In in, uh, Mark 4, his parable chapter, verse 28 talks about the all by itself of the kingdom. The kingdom just grows by itself. Paul said in Romans 1.16, it is the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. So it's encouragement. Secondly, it's warning. As Jesus said in the sermon, uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 7, he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So it is a warning. We can't soft-pedal that. But thirdly, it's a promise. If you are faithful, if you keep a soft and listening heart, you will bear fruit. That's a promise. The last point I want to make is about extravagance. This parable reveals the passionate love of the Father who is always reaching out. The kingdom seed is always being scattered. He's always inviting. Jesus scattered the seed in spite of opposition, extravagantly, he never stopped. And now he gives this same assignment to us. As he said in John, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. Next week, we're going to look at more of the parables, and we're going to turn things. I I hope we're going to help you to see even more how we can go deeper into the mystery of the parables. Stick with us, because in about a minute, Tim and I are going to sit down together and uh, and just talk through some of what we covered today. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, you did it again. Uh, I ended up being more student than podcast host and have taken all my notes in my Bible app instead of uh, <laughs> writing down questions. So we'll see how we do here. Well, should I apologize for that? Yeah, I think you should. Yeah, okay. So you should. I'm not that sorry. No. <laughs> uh, hey, before we dive into the questions that I've got for you, I wanted to update some folks on our skills and business programs. Um, I, you and I were sitting at breakfast uh, with some friends yeah. on uh, on Saturday and I, my phone started dinging like crazy and I was getting uh, some really cool footage uh, hot off the press. It was happening while we were sitting here in Albuquerque uh, having coffee with friends on the other side of the planet in Uganda. Trinity uh, was seeing a hundred students graduate from oh. their program, the Elevate program. And you guys hear, hear us talk about it all the time. And this is the hundred students that uh, have been learning things like uh, web design, graphic design, uh, motion graphics. Actually, some of the footage that you guys see here, like some of the videos that we present are actually done by graduates of this program. Uh, they're learning photography, videography, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, they graduated a hundred of them. I just found out moments ago, uh, that 
25 of those students already have jobs. Like they graduated wow. and wow. had employment right away. Uh, many others have started their own business. Uh, now, this is where we actually need uh, the Impact Nations family help. Uh, we've got a lot of students that would like to get their own small business started. And we've developed a really cool system, actually, whereby they can uh, effectively rent-to-own equipment uh, because, you know, these skills, they require some fancy equipment and things like that, uh, and they want to go do their own business, but how do they get started? Well, we can do a a rent-to-own style of program where they get a loan that is their own equipment, but we hold the equipment at our facility, at Trinity's facility. And the reason we do that is a couple of reasons. One, uh, the temptation by family members to take that equipment and go sell it because, you know. The students wouldn't do that. No, the students wouldn't do that. But there's a good chance that somebody else in the household, of course, these are multi-generational households. So sometimes, uh, you know, mom might say, hey, well, your baby sister needs formula or something like that. So we're going to sell this thing or, you know, the kids need to eat, whatever. They don't understand that they're. They're really uh, cutting off their nose just by their face. And so we keep the equipment at the facility. The other reason for that is just security. This is a secure facility that uh, we actually recently upgraded the security system on that thing. Uh, and so that way there's no theft because we also – we don't want these – kids to be in danger, um, kids, young adults, to be in danger by having really expensive equipment in their home yep. or some, yep. some gang members could come or whatever. But as they're paying off their loan, they are, you know, once their loan is paid off, then it's, hey, what do you want to do with your equipment? It's yours now. You do with it what you will. Anyway, really clever way of doing these things. Um, <clears throat> so we need help uh, to get these businesses started. By the way, and just one other cool little thing, if you'll permit me, I just learned. Um I think we talked about here at one point that in the in their building um, they bought a new a new office space yep. uh, earlier this year. They've got a, a whole section with a, a window that faces out towards the street that has become like a bank, and they do small loans not just for graduates of their programs but also for the general public. Now, wow. those who graduate from an Impact Nations program get an interest free loan. But the, there are funds available for those in the community who would also like to get a small loan that are uh, – they pay an interest on that. Mm-hmm. Now, the interest that's collected from that is actually – this is a small business that is helping to support the school and things like that. So um, that's really exciting too. Anyway, we need your help uh, to get more loans to these students. As I said, 25 of them got jobs right away. Others are are out looking for employment, and I'm sure we'll find it soon. But there are many who would like to start their own small business, and we got to help them get that done. Uh, So if you head to impactnations.com slash skills, uh, you can give there, give any amount uh, that you'd like, and that's going to go directly to Uganda right now to help get started. this program that you've just explained, what would a typical loan be? Mm, That's a good question. My understanding uh, is on some of the small ones now we we have graduates uh who aren't just on the um the high tech side of things but we've also got uh some women who are starting small uh like fruit stands and things like that from mm-hmm. another vocational school that trinity does so there could be loans as small as a hundred dollars we've done and then others that would be several hundreds of dollars uh, for for the more high tech equipment obviously okay. so um but anyway, yeah, we we need your help. Uh, just to put a dollar dollar amount on it, uh, we're looking at 
somewhere between seven and ten thousand dollars that we we need to get started with loans this fall. So um, we need. Well, to help. it's exciting because we've now been at it long enough that we have a really good track record. We do yeah, and such a high percentage yeah. of these folks, their whole lives, they don't just change for a week or a month. They are just on a new path. Oh, absolutely, and it's generational, of course, yeah. because now their kids are able to go to school, uh, and many of these these students, by the way, were. You know, they've fled from war-torn zones like the yeah, Congo. Yeah. Uh, and so now their children will, will have an opportunity that they never did because they they have means in their family. It's an incredibly powerful program. I didn't know about the bank. So now we have two banks going. Yes, we have two banks going, which is pretty cool. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, I should say also, he uh, Trinity sent us a stat. Apparently 92% of the loans that they've given out uh, are still on track in terms of their payment plan. Not that 92% are fully repaid, but they're on track. They're yep. they're paying back at the rate that was expected. So 92%, that's... Very high. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to double check that number because that's, that's incredibly high. Um, anyway, very exciting stuff. Uh, what were we talking about? Uh, sweater weather parables. That's it. We talked about sweater weather while you were... The parable uh, of the Irish knit sweater. <laughs> that's... <laughs> There's a parable that has got to be. Uh, absolutely. All right. Let's talk about the sin nature. Uh, this one really intrigued me because you were talking about some of the church fathers' um, understanding of the the rocky soil being our, our sin nature that we're still mm. battling with. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm immediately, of course, thinking in my mind, I'm jumping to Romans 6 where Paul basically says, hey, you, you're not a slave to sin anymore. Like if you were crucified with Christ, you're dead to sin. You reckon you're yourself good. is dead. Yep. <laughs> so square that circle for me. Well, I that's a great one. Thank you for that. <laughs> hey, no warning. Hey, well, hey. No you, warning. You teach it. It's going to come your way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I need to tell you right away yeah. that um, at some point I'm going to need to teach overall that there's there's lots of overlap, there's lots of agreement, but there is a different presentation of the gospel uh, from Matthew than Paul. Okay. There just is. Matthew stresses cover to cover mm-hmm. that um, it's empowered by grace, but there must be a new life, a fruitful life. Um, Paul wouldn't disagree with that, but he emphasizes um, the completed work of Mm -hmm. Christ, whereas Matthew takes us back to what John Wimber used to tell me 30 years ago, us pastors, you know, them that saved act like it. We've said that before. And so you're always going to see an emphasis in Matthew all the way through and through the parables. Look at the last parable, the sheep and the goats. It is not based on what you believe. It's what did you do with your life? Yeah. So the, we have to reconcile in our minds that there's there's two parts of this. By the way, if people are interested, I think I think N.T. Wright has the best handle of anybody yeah. on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to try to you know paraphrase N.T. Wright. Um, it it really does matter what we do. Yeah. By the way, you're. I think one of the one of the things that stuck with me most today was your definition of understanding. That mm. was fantastic. So helpful to understand that <laughs> to understand that understanding is uh, is effectively in this passage. He's talking about obedience. It, that concept of uh, to be standing under the authority of the message, to be loyal to the message, yes. to be obedient to the message. Yeah, that is understanding. That's understanding, and yeah. we have we have. 
theorized that yeah. so much in the gospel. It's what you believe. No, it's, it's what you stand under. Yeah, because yeah. that's actually what you believe. Because if, uh, yes. if you believe it, you're going to do it. Yes. <laughs> you Otherwise, know? you don't really believe it. You yeah. intele- you've intellectualized it. You, you kinda, it's got here, but it hasn't gotten down to your heart. Yeah. 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 Hmm. All right. Uh, anxiety. I want to talk about anxiety again. And we that talked makes about me this, anxious uh, talking about that. <laughs> Um, we've talked about it a little bit here before, but it is so prevalent in our society and, you know, especially in the last two years, more and more so there's more and more articles about the, the mental health, uh, crisis as a result of, of the pandemic. Um, and there's a very fine balance here, isn't there? Because it's, it's important that we talk about mental health, uh, and, um, and not, you know, stuff it away and say, well, if you're, you know, if you're in Christ, then you don't have yeah, to worry about anxiety. Victory. You got the victory, brother. Um, but at the same time, we need to find victory. What's the balance? For those who are wrestling with anxiety uh, and, you know, our understanding today from this parable is just how dangerous that can be in terms of those thorns and thistles that will choke out yep. uh, the kingdom life. What's step one? Boy, oh, boy. I always come back to the same place. I always come back to the Beatitudes, yeah. and in the Beatitudes, I come back to abiding, which is, you know, John 15, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. Um, uh, step one is a very intentional turning of my heart and, frankly, my time and attention yeah. toward Christ, yeah. one-on-one mm-hmm. Christ. I know I keep saying that, but it is the foundation. Yeah. It's been the foundation for my life mm-hmm. for a long, long time. Yeah. And so when we turn away from the overarching anxiety of the whole way that the world is structured, especially mm-hmm. in the West, yeah. um, we we turn to Jesus. Otherwise, you know, I'm suddenly reminded of the, the parable, you know, you cast out the demon and leave yeah. it alone, seven come back. So we start with him. And then we start letting him gently, in his own beautiful, gracious, healing way, start to show us where we've come under the anxiety mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. And, you know, in it's very interesting. You and I would both know this, that, that we deal with, with partners who are in societies that have, so many have just about nothing. Yeah. Right? And when you go spend time with them, you cannot help but be impacted with the peacefulness. Yeah. You know? And uh, I just just recently heard someone say they were away for four or five years. They came back to America, and what caught them was the anxiety, the pace of life. Yeah. And um, so it's it's a spirit. I believe absolutely we're talking about principalities and powers that have been given so much room. Yeah. And so if you're surrounded by that, you have you got to come out of that goldfish bowl to get some fresh water yeah. or you're just going to keep being caught up in it. Mm-hmm. And anxiety, by the way, as I tried to explain today, is more than stress. It's this this almost foundational thing that I got to keep up. I got to feel worthy. I got to mm-hmm. feel like I'm succeeding in life. Yeah. And um and we all know that's a trap, 
but it's a subtle trap that we can easily get caught into. You know, I just read an article yesterday, not cheerful, but um, how the suicide rate among men uh, five, ten years after they've retired is goes way up. Wow. And I just thought of that. And why? Because they don't they don't feel useful yeah. in society anymore. Because yeah. society bases their response to you on your usefulness. Yeah. And uh, and what a lie that is. Yeah. You know, I we can't help but bring up social media in this discussion too, because. You, uh, that underlying anxiety you're talking about in terms of I don't measure up, uh, I'm not accomplishing what I should, I don't look the way I should, whatever that is. Social media, I think, is the enemy's absolute number one tool to bring about that that underlying anxiety. Yeah. And uh, you know what? Facebook, Instagram can be a wonderful tool for keeping up with your family and friends. But uh, if it in, I just implore you, if it in any way is contributing to your anxiety uh then stop it you know start a group text with your family so you can get photos from them and get out and i'm telling you that as a guy who has not been on facebook i don't do facebook i don't do instagram i don't do twitter i don't do any of it uh and that's not me bragging that's me saying i know what you know i know what you don't my, want to be trapped uh, yeah by i know what my what i could be be susceptible to personally and you know that's one of those uh hey maybe for some it's okay and for you it's not and that's okay we talked a few weeks ago about unity yeah and it's i also believe it is it is like at the bullseye of disunity Mm. and conflict yes and and has anybody ever persuaded anybody else through their facebook (laughs) post ever yeah and yet it has polarized, it is yeah. added to the polarization. Yeah. By the way, not between Christians and non-Christians. No, no. But among Within believers. church, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, you've heard me say before, I think it's because we get involved in things we have no business being involved yeah. in. Absolutely. Jesus had no interest in the political world. Yeah. Render under Caesar what Caesar's. Yeah. Just, yeah. we don't need that. Yeah. So I, I think that you're right. Social media really adds to anxiety yeah. and of course just the advertising every day every day every mm-hmm. day yep. you know i get i get so much junk mail like you do telling yeah. me i need a better house and a better car <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like my house i like my car yeah but it doesn't stop yeah absolutely you don't want to fall behind no yeah <laughs> all right one last quick question yeah. for you um really interesting that you do continue to come back to this place of there there is a moment of decision like we Matthew is not saying hey it's an inclusive gospel and that's it he's saying it's an inclusive gospel but we, you need to make the choice to be included yes you need to to respond to the invitation we talk a lot here on the podcast at impact nations in general you and I talk loads about it we talk with our partners about it we talk with uh, our leaders about it about the inclusive nature of the gospel do we ever run the risk of being too far on the inclusive side that we forget to lead people to a place of decision? Um, well, that's a good point. We need to always be sure that we don't make that mistake. Yeah. But inclusive gospel is an inclusive invitation. Mm, yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. And you invite everybody. And you notice, I, I think it. I think I said it today. I've been studying the parable <laughs> so much the last couple of weeks, but that that there's nothing. There, there, the seed is scattered to the rich, to the poor, <laughs> to Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. It, it's an inclusive invitation, but the key is invitation. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, good. This was fun. Thanks. Uh, I won't read that parable the same again. Uh, and I got lots of notes in my Bible to prove it. And I'm uh, really looking forward to talking about the wheat and the tares. Mm. And for me, it accentuated good, authentic scholarship, but built on the historical critical method. Yeah. And it accentuated the difference between that and more of a water to wine yeah. reading. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that because actually one of the questions we didn't get to today that I'd written down was about the historical critical method and its value and things like that. So looking forward to jumping into that next week. Great. So, awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, do join us every Thursday, 3 p.m. Mountain Time on YouTube, Facebook. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback. You can email us or comment uh, in either of those platforms. The email is podcast at impactnations.com. Uh, and uh, you can also check out the audio. Uh, if you haven't done that already, hit subscribe uh, in your favorite podcast app and it'll just get delivered to you every week. Uh, and hey, leave us a five-star review. That's always really helpful as well. That helps us get discovered by, by other people people who haven't yet discovered the impact nations podcast. So, uh, um, and let me yeah. say one more thing. I said it briefly in that long message. I would encourage you if you haven't read the beatitudes for a time of crisis, yep. they fit right in with what we're looking yep. at in the parables good. and this whole issue of anxiety we've yep. just talked about. Absolutely. So uh, you can get it. Where's the best place to get it on our website? Uh, yeah. Website, uh, impactnations.com or Amazon or whatever. Or something like that. Yeah. There's a big shop button on our website. Yeah. But I would encourage, you know, I don't usually really push a, one of my own books, um, but I would encourage people because it's very timely, Absolutely. not only for the t season we're in, but for understanding for the, the parables. Yeah, yeah. good. Uh, very good. And uh, impactnations.com slash skills. Uh, check it out. There's going to be some updates in there uh, this week with some photos of graduates and things like that. So you don't want to miss that stuff. Um, we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much. God bless. God bless you.